welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Knock On Podcast, and uh, funny enough, it's Podcast 98, and I've got my special guest here with me, whom I started raining terror on the entire ASA circuit in 1998. I got my good buddy Dave Stepp with me. What's up, dude? Hey, how's it going? (laughs) Yeah, dude, it's 1998 man you were rooming together throwing tires out of our car rental cars and sliding (laughs) them into asa classics and shooting michael braden's arrows apart and good god knows who what else we were doing all i can tell you is hertz rental car is really glad you're not on the circuit anymore (laughs) oh my god remember (laughs) do you remember we might as well start off with that so do you remember that time when we were on the way to, was it McKean, Pennsylvania? It was Erie, Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The well, pastor's like uh, 75 miles an hour down the road, and I think I was driving. And, uh, you know, my co-pilot just decided to grab the e-brake and fully engage it, going <laughs> 75 miles an hour down the road. Not a pretty moment. <laughs> no, no. We had so we had three three more days of driving with about a one inch divot in our tires. <laughs> it literally felt like we were driving on square tires, man. It was terrible. <laughs> yeah, I felt felt like we were in Fred Flintstone's freaking car, man. That was so fun. Yeah. That was my tech that was my text saying Brady Ellison just shot a five ninety nine at Neem. Oh man, he missed one. How did that happen? Yeah, what the hell? I mean, this guy's <laughs> got to step up his game some. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. You know, yeah, Brady's uh, he's a, he's a hometowner. He's he's right uh, forty five minutes south of me. That's right. Me and you were yeah. shoot. Me and you were shooting the Arizona Cup, and he was like literally didn't even have any pubic hair yet. He was just like. <laughs> yeah. Chunky little fat kid trying to learn how to uh, shoot a compound bow. Well, let me tell you, he figured it out in the recurve world. Yeah. Well, do you know his first recurve is mine? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's mine, and he won't give it back. I asked him at the sh- I asked him at the ATA show. I said, "Hey, dude, I go, can I um, can you like sign my bow and give it back?" He's like, "You're not getting that back." Oh, oh no, kid. Was it the uh, the Matthews prototype one, or was it a yep. white? No, it was, yep. Yeah, yeah. he was in love with that forever. And then he finally uh, put his big boy pants on and moved up, you know, to a to a white recruit. <laughs> to a bow that, that <laughs> more than three people in the world could shoot? Well, to a bow that more than three people in the world could buy, let's put it that way. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, hey, so last night I kind of spilt the beans and... I said that there's a superstar amount about to emerge into the ASA circuit again. So guess what? Let me hear uh, it. What? You told you told me. You said, <laughs> "Dude, let's podcast." And yeah. 
So obviously the things that no, you... No, no, no. I, 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 all I told you was that I was coming out of the closet, Dad. I didn't say I was starting <laughs> well, to shoot again. <laughs> hey, we... It's, I mean, it's 2017, equal rights. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, hey, we've got... Uh, there there could... I bet you anything, I've got a ton of listeners that would be that would be pumped to hear that. You're pretty hot. You make <laughs> this pecs <laughs> dance. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you, you know, we talked a little early... Earlier, I, you know, it was 2016, I guess, probably five, six months ago, I was kicking around the idea of getting back out there and shooting, you know, my, I kind of laid off and, and just, just kind of faded into the, into the dark because I had gotten married and had a kid and, you know, just doing the family thing. Well, that kid's 18, he's a senior in high school now, and he's expressed some interest about wanting to go and shoot, so... You know, kind of getting the itch and kicking around the idea. And uh, I talked to a couple of bow manufacturers, and one in particular seemed very interested. And we hammered out a deal, and uh, I signed a contract early last week. And I'm the proud new owner of uh, several Bowtech bows. So, boom, you yeah, heard it first. I know you called me, and you know that's well. I'm probably gonna. I don't really know if I'm gonna get a little bit of hate or not, but. I shouldn't say hate, but I've kind of really opened my doors to talking about every brand really freely right now. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I've I kind of tailored a little bit to some Matthews guys the other day, and actually, uh, I've got a I've got a PSE guy that I'm working with right now. And actually, you called me. When was it? Was it was it October maybe or November? I, you know. I- I want to say maybe it was before elk season. It might have been August or early September. Well, yeah, it was. That's right. Because, yeah. well, I'll let the cat out of the bag. So, um, Botech was actually talking with me as well. That was one reason why Dave and I were both kind of talking. Botech actually asked if I would be willing to go out there and work. Um, I said no. But, obviously, yeah. you were really impressed with how they were shooting. So, tell me about it, dude. What's up? I mean... Are we going to have Well, like... you know, <laughs> you look at a lot of the compound bows out there, and, and let's just start by saying it's not the same world it was in the mid to late 90s. Everybody is making a very good product nowadays. Um, but there are some things about Bowtech and some of the things that they're doing that, that make you kind of stand back and scratch your head and go, okay, why are they doing this? What's the reasoning behind this? How come no one else has anything like this? And uh, it's really some pretty cutting-edge stuff that they're doing. Like, for instance, the first thing that I, I noticed that anybody probably noticed when uh, some of the weird-looking Bowtech bows came out, they were called center pivot bows. So you had, a, you had this limb bolt like a standard uh, uh, compound bow would have, but then instead of pivoting on maybe a four or five inch long pocket, you've got this pocket that extended out to the center of the limb and the, the limb, you know, kind of flex in the center. And I get to looking at that and I'm kind of wondering, you know, why and what's going on. Yeah, I understand that it's using the whole limb and not just part of the limb, but there's actually a lot more to it than that. And the thing that made sense to me was you're taking a reflex riser bow that in, in, in target terminology, a deflex riser is always easier, 
easier to to shoot and not torque the bow. Let's just put it that way. Well, with this reflex center pivot design, they're they're having a reflex riser, so you're getting all the benefits and speed of a reflex bow, but you're also getting the benefits of a deflex riser where that pivot point is back behind your grip. So it's very difficult to torque the bow and get those random lefts and rights. That kind of opened my eyes to that bow. I shot it, you know, and it's ever more important nowadays with these bows that have more and more and more let off. You get a 70-pound bow and pull it back, and you're holding eight or nine pounds. Man, if, you, if your hand position's off at all, you're going to torque the crud out of that bow. So that center pivot design has uh, really made that a very shootable reflex riser bow, and I think anybody that spends any time behind that would agree with me. What which model are you going to go with? Like, what do you? You know, when when we first started talking, Botech had a uh, target bow. It's called a Fanatic, and I have several Fanatic 2.0s, and they've just released a Fanatic 3.0. And what's interesting is even before I signed a contract with Botech, we were talking about things that I would like to see changed on the bow. Well, apparently, somebody else there at Botech thought the same way I did because we flattened out the grip a little bit. It's not quite as radius as it was. And then there's a lot of attachment points for counterbalances off the back of the bow. Well, a lot of guys stack a lot of weight off of E-bars. Uh, my son does that. And he, I was watching him shoot his bow, and he's getting a lot of vibration off of one of his back rods. And I looked at it, and I thought, you know, that thing's going to break off of there eventually. So we talked to Botech and said, hey, you know, I, I see an issue here. Have you guys ever had that happen? They said, well, we've had one or two that have come back with stress cracks. Well, on the 3.0, they, uh, they have beefed that up. They all have stainless uh, bushing inserts in them. And so basically they made the bow bulletproof. They haven't changed much as far as the wheel, and I wouldn't want them to because the, the wheel feels incredible. So now I, you know, I'm shooting this bow. It's somewhere around a 38-inch axle to axle. Uh, I think. So you're I not goes, you're not shooting the XL, or the X. It is it is an XL. It comes in oh, two versions. The, it, the XL is a bigger cam than the the standard the standard Fanatic 3.0. So the XL does not denote the axle to axle size of the bow. It's just the size of the cam that comes on the bow. Yeah, so you're getting a little bit bigger axle to axle because of the size of the cam, theoretically, because because of where the string's coming off the cam. Yeah, well, I take several of, well, I did this just the other day. I took an old uh, uh, Vantage Elite that I used to shoot, and I draw that sucker back on the hooter shooter and measure where the string comes off top and bottom of the wheel on yep. a 40-inch axle to axle bow. And my 38-inch axle to axle bow has actually not as steep a string angle as the 40-inch Hoyt did. So there is some, some, uh, some, some definite benefits to those bigger cams at full draw on shorter bows. You know, the string angle is not as steep. And you see that in a lot of the hunting bows. Hoyt did that with uh, the uh, Defiant Series bow. Yep. You know, you can take, you can take that 30-inch axle hunting bow, and it has the same string angle as the previous 34-inch bow did. So, you know, a lot of companies are doing that. Matthews is doing it with that Halon bow. You know, they get a great string angle out of a 30-inch bow. 
Yep. So guys with longer draw lengths are able to shoot those shorter bows with, with better results because the string angle is not so steep. Well, what, uh, I mean, have you set it up for like real long range stuff or are you just setting it up for 3D stuff? I mean, have you <laughs> shot it out to a hundy or more? Uh, and and beyond. <laughs> Way beyond. <laughs> oh, yeah. I The first, kind of the first time I, I had it out and about was uh, in July. There's a local tournament that kind of up in the hills and went out there and we're sitting around a camp and everybody kind of decides to come to, to my camp, I guess. I, I don't know. I don't know if they, they, uh, like hearing stories or they want to, they want to crack at the champ or what I, you know, I don't know. So anyway, <laughs> after the, after the normal 3d shoot, there's like a real shoot over at, at my camp usually. So, you know, several guys show up there and, uh, we happened to be shooting at, uh, uh, I want to say it was 122 yards. And the reason it was 122 is that's as far as my kid can get before his scope interferes with the fletching on his arrow. So we were shooting at 122. And we're talking about Tristan. We're talking about Tristan. No, yeah, we're no. talking about Tristan. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the two of us are out there shooting. My dad's kind of watching and and looking through the spotting scope, telling us telling us what we're doing wrong, like he always does. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, seven or eight guys pull in, and they're standing around there, and they all want to shot to shoot. Well, we're shooting at like a, oh, probably an 18 by 18 square Reinhardt target with a, a Vegas face on it out at 125 <laughs> yards, a single spot Vegas face. So these guys all want to jump out there and shoot. And we're like, yeah, you know, get in there. Well, once they all started shooting, we spent more time looking for arrows out there than we did shooting because they weren't hitting the block very often. Oh, yeah. So out in the middle of nowhere, the guy finds his golf ball and uh, starts a bet. He bets that, you know, we can't hit that at that distance. So I said, well, you know, these arrows are about 20 bucks an arrow. I go, I'm not going to waste a good $20 arrow on that golf ball down there. And he laughed like, you know, yeah, like you could hit it, right? So they they uh, rounded up enough money and got 200 bucks on it. <laughs> so Tristan wanted to shoot it really bad. So we had a coin toss to see if Tristan had a crack at the 200 or if I would get a crack at the 200. Well, I, uh, I won the toss. And I'm telling you, man, I centered a Titleist at 122 on the first shot, and it did not break my arrow. So got the arrow <laughs> and the 200 bucks. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time behind the bow shooting longer distance. The bow shoots. It's a very good shooting bow. Well, son of a gun, dude. You just, like, somehow talked me into, like, 20-minute sales pitch. You're like, I'm sold. I want, to well, try, I want to try one now. Yeah, Unof- unofficially, I can't get fired or anything, but, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> Which I yeah. like. That's the one thing, you know, that's the one thing I miss about going to tournaments is we used to always have so much fun being able to shoot someone else's bow. Oh, yeah. I mean, remember when we, like, I don't, I would, I was like, 
love it when you came to practice because I could shoot a Hoyt. Because I was like, I couldn't be seen with one because I was with Matthew. So, you know, whenever you'd come, I'd be like, okay, show me this sucker. And you and I are so close in draw length. Other than our pea height, we can pretty much, we could take one bow to Redding, I think. If oh, I think so too. Yeah, you know, if the team event at Reading required that you shot the same bow, I think we'd have that on lock. <laughs> yeah, that 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 would be a good team round. Same bow, same everything. You literally have one guy carries the bow, one guy carries the quiver. Same yep. release. We could there do you it. Go. We could I do it. I think we'd be in. What? Um, you know, we so might, we might make the world tour on that. <laughs> what are the, what release are you shooting right now? Don't don't tell me a BK Hunter. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm shooting that original BK Hunter. The trigger doesn't work anymore. I just rotate it like a stand till it unhooks. <laughs> Actually, you know, I'm not dead set on what I'm going to shoot. I've been I've been kicking it around a little bit. Um, you know, I I kind of grew up in this whole archery world shooting Carter release aids. I've got a. Uh, uh, just cause that I really like, but I, the thing that I really like, John, is the ability to switch back and forth from a trigger to a hinge. Yep. So without having to recite my bow and chain, retune my bow, um, I've been shooting, uh, some of the true ball releases that have the same jaw on the, on the, uh, thumb trigger release as they do on the hinge release. So I can switch back and forth, you know, arrow to arrow and still hit the same spot without having to change anything on the bow. haven't decided for sure what I'm going to do, but uh, uh, here in the last couple of weeks I've been messing around with some of that true ball stuff. What did you – I sent you a knock to it, didn't I? Did I? You did. I, I – uh, well, let's see. Is that what, what, what was the green two-finger thumb? Yeah, so I sent you a knock to it. But yeah, I think yeah. I, you got one of the very first ones. It probably doesn't even have the name on it. Uh, no, it doesn't have the name. It just has your logo. Yep, yep. And that, that is my hunting release. That is attached to my hunting bow all times. <laughs> yeah. it's uh, You know who loves it is Zach at Hoyt. Zach? Oh, yeah. You know who else called me for one? Because he, he took Zach's. Now Wilkie wants one. Well, I gave him oh, one. Oh, really? Yeah, I gave Wilkie one. Yeah, all the old two-finger superstars are coming out of the woodwork. I figure Tony Clem will be the next to call me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many of those uh, true ball sweet spots I have that all the other fingers are hacksawed off except for two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what's funny is... Um, for, well, you know, I shot the I shot the deuce forever. I shot two finger releases, like even back. Well, I even shot my revengers with just two fingers, and people would look at me like, "What's up?" But I just think less. You know, if you could shoot a bow, if you could shoot your your bow with only half of your hand on the bow, you'd be more accurate that way too. Oh and, yeah, and the less contact um, on both ends. You know, because really the your release is probably you know it's the first thing to determine the path of the of the string, but your front bow hand is the first thing and the last thing to determine the actual path of the riser and essentially arguably the path of the arrow too. 
So I just think the less contact and the less variation you have on either end of that, you know, that big diamond-shaped triangle, um, the more accurate you're going to be. Well, definitely. I mean, to add a little more to that is that bow hand, I mean, that's predetermined when you draw the bow back. Yeah, before you even get it back. Yeah, yeah. And then as far as the two fingers go, um, I've always liked two-finger releases. There hasn't been a very big selection of two-finger releases until recently. And uh, if you think about that, especially if you're shooting a hinge, if you think about that in terms of how long that hinge is and how much of your hand you're using to execute a shot with the hinge, the longer that that hinge is and the more fingers and more hand you have on there, the easier it is going to be to rotate that thing away from your face as it fires. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and if people are getting slight lefts and rights that are unexplainable, you know, switch it up. Try try three finger, try two finger. See if that's not your problem. Yeah, well, I would say definitely if you drop the third finger, you're you're rocking and rolling. But, well, <laughs> god dang it, freaking I'm pissed at you, dude. So, Why is that? <laughs> just because you kind of like you make a really important like call, but in the same sense, like uh, I can't say it. Sharon will kill me if I say it. <laughs> oh, she, she she's not listening. Go ahead. She's she is listening. Actually, her her and James are like doing customer service emails literally across this wall from me right now. So. There's a good chance she could that door's gonna open. She's gonna hit me in the back of the head if I say what's 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 in the design stages right now. I guess I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, essentially, um, yep. You'll be you'll be you'll be shooting a knock on release soon well, enough. Give me something worth shooting. Well, I want I'm gonna have you shooting a hunting one, and you'll be shooting a target one. I don't I don't yeah. offer contingency money though. you know the funny thing about contingency money you actually have to shoot something that shoots well enough to win yeah and you know that's lost in a lot of people nowadays they're just they're just (laughs) yeah well uh, my thing is i always make sure that it'll shoot before i say yes so (laughs) yeah well you know you know if i send it it's gonna shoot oh yeah 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 we've had we've we've well we've we've spoke off record many 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 a time and um i was i was happy for you that you one that you were excited to go somewhere that you were that you're really into the bows i haven't personally really shot botex in a long time i shot some of the ones several years ago i shot one i shot some when i um well when i when i left matthews I was actually, you know, I pretty much was going to either take a job at PSE, Hoyt, or Bowtech. They were all on the grid, and I shot one then. And um, But, you know, they're the one company I didn't talk with at the ATA show. I talked with engineers at at PSE, and I talked with engineers at at Matthews um, just because I wanted to – kind of get current on some of the 2017 stuff and you know there's just so many changes now and really the big reason is because of the new cam systems you know the binary systems 
because you don't have a yoke system to really, um, well, on some of the systems, you don't have a yoke to really be able to adjust the cam position. A lot of companies right. have a lot of different systems to be able to adjust that cam angle so that you're able to get the tunes that you want. So it was important for me to talk with those different people about about those technologies and how to make sure that I was letting people know how to make those adjustments safely. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I think I know how, but that doesn't mean what I'm doing isn't like, you know, voiding warranty or something like that. So I was able to right. talk with people and I guess I probably should have, I never had time, but I should have went by, um, I should have went by Botech just to take a look. Yeah, so. Well, that's, that's one of the other, uh, key reasons I like this bow. This is by far, hands down, the easiest bow to tune that I have ever shot. And in part by that yoke system, their yoke system runs to the outside of the limb. You can yoke tune anything you need to do. I mean, how beautiful is it that you take a bow out of the box, set up the arrow dead center down the riser where you want it to shoot or where you think it should shoot, and then you make it shoot there by manipulating the yoke system on the bow without having to move the rest in, touching the riser, or out past the riser, or anything like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so, it's, it's cool. I mean, I would argue, I would argue sometimes it weirds me out when I'm, if I'm like, it weirds me out just as much to have my cams all wiggity whacked than it does for me to have my center shot wiggity whacked. You're yeah, doing you're doing yeah. a good job. I don't know if did Gillingham like say if you can get on Dud's podcast and sell this sucker because I feel like well, you want to know what's funny about that. I literally that, feel dude. like I'm in your shop right. Like, did you take my credit card? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm literally at like a Botech class. <laughs> but that's good. I need to be brought current. I'm gonna probably come out and see you and Christine and like have you show me the whole rundown. We'll shoot. Yeah. Golf, we'll shoot some golf balls. I knew. The, yeah, there you go. I knew the golf ball wouldn't be a problem. I've actually seen you shoot something freaking way smaller at that, at way <laughs> further of a distance. We will not disclose that. But I'm just gonna say, like, hey, hey, I've hey. Made, I've all, made, all I can tell you is. Don't say it. You you were a you were a non-believer, and then we showed up to that Battle Creek, Michigan, and I shot that bird off of that <laughs> rhinoceros and backed it right up with it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So let's. I might as well just. I'll I'll tell this without getting either of us in trouble. So. <laughs> And this actually will apply. This will this will feed into some important stuff for those of you listening. So, um, and I want to make sure that I tell people Dave Step. He's got an awesome shop out in um, out in Arizona. Dave is one of the most decorated 3D archers of all time. He's the first person to ever earn six figures only on shooting prize money. This isn't. This doesn't include contracts. This includes someone that literally kicked everyone's ass in every single tournament cabela's ibo as like it didn't matter if you and that stupid single cam high country showed up <laughs> there was bit, like, shooting a smoke in 268 yeah <laughs> shooting 268 feet a second out of the one of the wackiest single cam bows you'd ever imagine but 
I'll be damned if you didn't. Well, so Dave, Dave finally left, um, left P, um, high country and went to Hoyt and was shooting really, really good with Hoyt. And um, I've always been a believer in when you really want to elevate your game, one of the most important aspects of elevating your game is making sure that you bring in someone that helps you do that. And even if you get along with them or sometimes you don't, for example, Dave and I, we were room, we were roommates almost for the majority of my professional 3D stuff, you and I roomed together. Prior to that, before I, before I turned pro, I always roomed with the Chapel Brothers. But then you and I roomed together and like in some situations where we could meet up before the tournament, we would train together prior to the tournament. So in this situation, Dave actually, Dave and his wife, Christine flew into, did I have my shop then? I think I might have, did I have my store? Um, you know, I think you had, I think you had, it was just after that. Cause I want to say you showed me where you had it. Oh yeah, that's right. We went yeah. back. We actually met there, I think. But anyway, yeah. Um, so Dave and I were out practicing and like most, most guys do that are out practicing, kind of like the golf ball thing. There was an object at a very extreme distance where I said, I bet you can't hit that. And literally we looked at this thing long enough to where we had to hold an arrow up in the air off the target and and kind of figure out where he would have to gap in order to airball this freak. How far was it? Was it over two hundred? Oh, it was, it was closer to three, my friend. <laughs> Good God! <laughs> Let Holy me just tell you, it was like oh. drop the side as low as it could go, and full arrow shaft half, halfway up the thirty foot tree behind the target. Yeah, yeah, it was the wrong way. Yeah, we plumb bobbed, we plumb bobbed the target with an arrow, and we figured where you would need to aim, like based off our gaps. And we just literally said, "Dude, if you aim like right there, you might have a chance." And this is first arrow. This wasn't like we sat there for a while. Wait a second, second. let's back up a little bit. (laughs) We are loading our bows in the trunk to go to the shoot. And we see this thing, and that's when it was on. We pulled it out and had to take a shot. <laughs> yep. And all I can say is it was an absolute pinwheel. And I just sat there like I didn't know what to say. The whole wait for, for the next six hours for that drive, all I said was that was the luckiest shit I've ever seen in my life. Because I've made, I've made some shots that have – made like Jerry Carter or Jim Bath or like Jay like I've made some shots where people were like no way but this this had me saying there's no way so anyway we get to the shoot and they had wasn't it like Sims was it Sims that did those novelty shoots um it was it was no 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 it was Brunton because I want a pair of Brunton binoculars. That's at it. right. Yeah, we were just shooting twelves, and then I said, "I bet you can't hit." Because they had a huge target, and on the top of the target, they literally stuck this little plastic bird on its back for like an effect. And I said, <laughs> "I bet you can't hit that freaking bird." And 
Dude, you oh, freaking peeled man. that bird right off that sucker's back. <laughs> God. You yeah, can... it went right through the eye, and it was buried up to the fletching, if I remember correctly, and it was about 15 yards back behind the target. We had to pry the bird off the arrow. Yep. Yeah, that that tournament, I think we got in some trouble with Christine, too, didn't we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if uh, she's there, in trouble. You kidding me? Yeah, so I don't know how people are probably going to want to know about that one. Let's yeah, just—I don't know—that's a whole <laughs> podcast in itself. Well, we might as well say it. Half of my podcasts haven't had anything to do with archery lately. They're just yeah. been, literally been so. We're going to have to answer some questions, but so we'll we got to like finish up our storytelling time with this story. So let's just say there's two guys. I was like early 20s, Dave was late 40s. No, how old were you then? Bro, I don't know. I'm 40 I, now. I can what tell are you right you? now. What are you? I can tell you right now, in three years, I'm going to be rocking the senior class. Oh my God. That. No, that would be, that'll just be destruction. So, okay, so I'm 20, Dave's 27. The two of us are there. We're like pretty much. Well, he made money. I didn't make money. I didn't make much money then. So we're we're sharing a room, and Dave has this um, Dave has this video camera. This was like right when he first first video cam. People had their own little personal video camera. So we're literally in our in our room. We had ate some kind of nasty food from some cheap restaurant like we normally did. And, I mean, it was tearing me up. I've never been able to eat junky. If I eat junky, I pay the price. So let's just say one thing led to another, and we started a little blue flame blue flame contest. So we, we turned the lights out, and I was throwing some blue flamethrowers out with um, some of this chili mac that I'd eaten from some gas station probably. And... We didn't think nothing of it. Like, I wasn't expecting you to be recording over your newborn kid's bir- first birthday party. <laughs> I, 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 I'm hearing this story, and I've got another part that you don't know about, and it's make, I'm just dying inside right now. Oh, no. So, let's, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all I know is about six months later... Christine will not even talk to me. She won't look at me. She's like mad. She, I mean, and I'm going, what's up? And then maybe you only gave me part of the story. So what's like, what happened? Like at what point? Well, well, so it was one of those deals where it was like the first video camera that was small enough to take somewhere. So it was on a high eight tape. Well, we, we recorded, I don't know. There's probably 40 or 50 tapes laying around the house, right? And, you know, technology has bypassed that, and now they go to disks, and now it's a hard drive. And so we're like, I can't even remember. We were, there was a family function, and it was Christmas time. Yeah, dude. And the tape said something about Christmas on there. So she, family's over, she gets it out, and she, like, puts it in in front of the family, and we're watching this Christmas thing, and then it blacks out, and then it's you, me, and a Christine lighter. was my 
was my girlfriend at that point. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we yeah. weren't married. And her and a Bic lighter. <laughs> <laughs> and probably 20 minutes worth of you and me laughing so hard we're peeing our pants. <laughs> so everyone at the Christmas party was laughing just as hard. And the surprising thing is about 90% of them didn't believe you could actually light a fart on fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is methane, and it does light. I mean, that's the reality. Yeah, so, well, I'm glad I could... Really? You're going to get me on here and talk about that? I, I need to call you out. You know, I've got some buddies that listen to your podcast, and... and uh, they just can't wait to call me because my name's been dropped and something's been said about me and and uh, Mister I don't practice and Mister I don't do this and Mister I don't do that. Well, I got a little story on that too. Oh God! <laughs> well, the good thing is I can edit. <laughs> but let's hear it. Let's hear yeah, it. Yeah. So, so I've got a guy here. He's pretty pretty into archery. Um, he's like, you know, how do you say? He's he's a he's a really good shot, one of the best guys around here locally, and he's he's been running a target league. Well, he kind of asked me, hey, you know, mind driving down here? It's forty five minutes from my place, and come down. We're doing a a Vegas league. So I thought, oh, all right, yeah, I got the new bow. I want to go take it down there and shoot the Vegas league, and we'll go down there. So right before. Uh, I get off the phone with him. He says, uh, oh, by the way, he goes, I listened to Dud's podcast, and he brought your name up again. Well, he has listened to every one of your podcasts, and he knows everything about everything. <laughs> so every time my name's dropped, he's like, can't wait to tell me, oh, hey, uh, they talked about you, or they talked about this, or they talked about that. And uh, so anyway, he goes, yeah, Dud said that you don't even need any practice. You could just show up down here and shoot good because I told him I didn't even have a bow sighted in. He's like, no, <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't need to do that. Well, funny and, part of that is and you don't. I, show up, <laughs> I show up down there at his league, and I blew out a 28X300 the first night out of the box. I knew you would. You freaking. <laughs> it, it doesn't surprise me at all. But I got to tell you, I hate standing at 20 yards shooting that stupid target over and over and over again. I don't know what it is about it, but I just cannot get into that. You know why? I actually had this conversation last night. I did a live feed. I haven't shot in probably, I mean, I set up my target bow. I shot it a little bit to know whether or not I liked it. But yeah. I haven't really shot it, which is probably about where you were. You know, you put a little bit of time in it. You knew it kind of fit you, and you knew that you, you know, your arrows flew good out of it. So, like last night, I did, I did a live feed, and I shot. And I, during the live feed, I probably shot like, I don't know, maybe I maybe shot two or three ends, I think, and. Then after the live feed was done, because I was like answering questions during shots and everything, I kind of felt like, you know, if I want to get anything out of this practice, I needed to do it to where I get in a rhythm. So I just, you know, yeah. get in a shot. So I just sat there and, and shot and just same thing. I mean, I shot for like 40 minutes and didn't miss. Right. And so then I told, um, I've told you know we've got we've got a guy here that's that's working with us that's um really really helping me out a ton 
um, his name is James. I looked at James and I said, see, I'm like, I said, why can I do that? Because honestly, I don't deserve to be able to. And you probably are the same way. You're like, you know what? I don't, I don't really deserve to come here and be able to do that. But the thing is, it does get boring. Yeah. That's why I like shooting, like long distance stuff, I miss. And I'm not saying I don't miss close, but it's it's almost so repetitive that it's really hard to maintain focus for a long period of time in practice. It's one thing if you go to a tournament, you got 30 arrows and then we can shoot the bull. But when yeah. you when you're like prepping for that, I mean, well, other than you, most of us have to shoot you know, I might need to shoot three or four or five rounds for several weeks leading up to that just to make sure that I've kind of got the stamina enough to stand there and let down and all that crap. So, but it does, it does get, it actually does get boring. That's the one, that's why I love outdoor and that's why I've always loved 3D. That's why I've always loved field because every shot's different. That's why I love Redding. Yeah, that's, that is my favorite format. I can, I can, you know, sling off two arrows at a target and go to the next one and the next one, and that doesn't get boring to me. That's, that's, that's awesome. Now, in this, uh, in this uh, indoor Vegas-style shooting, what I do like is when we shoot off head-to-head against each other. That's what I like. Mm-hmm. Like a shoot-off where we're closest to dead center. Hey, let's see. I like that. I love those pressure pack situations like that. Like going to Vegas, I hate shooting three days to see if you can shoot and not drop one to see if you're going to be the guy that goes into the shoot down in the pressure pack situation. I, I just, I don't know. I just don't like it. It's, it gets boring. Yeah, the funnest part about outdoor archery is you shoot one or two days for ranking, and then you get to just like shoot 12 arrows against someone and like I almost yeah. wish the ranking rounds would just be you know why not for the ranking rounds why wouldn't they just do 10 random or just do 12 random head to heads and then your combined score is what pulls you for the ranking right because at least then it's like I mean that's always what what was fun with me about the Arizona Cup was that and obviously the team rounds like the team rounds have always have always brought me back to archery so um i yeah, don't know when you, awesome. yeah when you and i shot the team rounds in arizona cup that's what really made it made me want to go when you and i shot well, the team round in redding that's what made me want to go and then i didn't want to go to redding and clem asked me if i'd be his teammate and it was the same thing yeah yeah, yeah. well like you said arizona cup the way the format used to be, and I think it's still very similar to that, is you go and sight your bow in for two days. It doesn't matter where you're ranked. If you don't lose, you're going to win the tournament. Yep. So I always, <laughs> I was the spoiler at that shoot. I'd shoot the, the tournament and literally sight my bow in for two days. And, uh, you know, I'd be ranked, hell, I don't know, 16th, 17th, 18th, you know, something like that. To where by the second round, now I'm shooting against like a number one or number two seed. I don't know how many times I sent that guy home. I know. More, more times than not. And it was just, 
you know, I like that. I, I, I like being able to do that. I like that kind of format. Heck I mean, yeah. I remember I remember one of them in particular. <laughs> he's oh, gonna, God. He's going to hate me for telling you this. But Logan came, Logan Wild, and I think he was ranked one or ranked two, and the kid had been shooting out of his mind. He shot a 149 out of 150, had his bow racked up, ready to go, and guess who shot a perfect score and sent him packing? <laughs> I know. That's what's awesome about it. <laughs> I've done that to pretty much every single big-name fetus eater there is. Yeah. It's so the, I like it's, that. Heck, yeah. It's always fun to to pack someone's shit up for them and send them home. I mean, well, they, you they, know, they would do it to me. Being, they do yeah, it to it's me. Fun being the- being the guy that does that, but I'd be lying to you to, if if I told you that that has never happened to me. It's happened to me too. I trust me. <laughs> well, that's yeah. That's the that's the beauty of head to heads. I mean, there's been well, Tim Gillingham has never beat me at a FITA event, like right. in a head to head. And I know yeah. that like, and he's the one person where I'm sitting there like, oh shit, are you kidding me? I got to go against it because I mean. If if the hammer's on, like you know you're you know you're packing your stuff, so it's just like okay, can I somehow well, oh, put no, enough? Let's, let's back up and add a little one more thing to that. If the hammer is on and the wind's blowing, you're screwed. <laughs> yeah, you're done. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's been several times where I'm just like, oh great, here we go. <laughs> you know, did you yeah. see, did you see Gillingham's? Freaking dry fire on the live feed the other day from the Botech. I did. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, dude, I played Good. that. I played that at my breakfast. I swear for thirty-five minutes, and then I'm gonna put it. I'm gonna put it on a continuous loop here at the shop. <laughs> I, <laughs> dude, I have it. I had. I like. I just sat there and watched it. And I'm just like. I'm like. I know this is coming back. Like I know I'm gonna do this in a live feed at some point because karma. It's just karma. At some point I'm gonna do that in a live feed. But yeah. until that happens, damn, that was that was funny. <laughs> I mean, it. And there's no. the. What's funny is the memes. Like there's there was literally. I I didn't even know it happened. I just opened Facebook. Right. And, and I literally started scrolling through my feed, and it was to the point where, like, my finger was sore because I've got, like, 30,000 archers following Knock on TV. So I'm just scrolling, and it's just, like, meme after meme after meme, and it's just like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, you think about that. I asked a little bit about that. That bow is, like, 32-inch draw and 70 pounds, and it stayed together when he did that yeah he was still pulling the same bow back after that and if you look at it that guy he's like two inches from full draw that's like a full-on dry fire that's, that's a, not like a half dry fire that's a 30 70 dry dry fire period yeah yeah and i think that was burnsworth's bow oh well, that would make it even better I, i'm positive it was his hunting bow you saw it had a equivalizer on there yeah it was his bow well, that would be even better. Yeah, he's he's been um, he's been secretly kind of duplicating a lot of my re- regurgitating my stuff instantaneously, which isn't the coolest, but well, whatever. Um, so hey, let's get in. We gotta we gotta take some time. 
I've got a bunch of um, questions that people actually gave me last night from my live feed um, about this indoor, you know, getting ready for indoor archery. So I want to bring up some of these questions and I'm going to let you answer them. And if I don't agree with them, then I'll step in. But so, so Chris Thomas is asking last night when I did the live feed, I was talking about how sometimes when you first, cause you know, I was cold Turkey. I, you know, I knew I was live. I hadn't shot for three weeks. I literally flew in from Vegas six hours earlier and I had three hours of sleep the night before, maybe a few, um, adult beverages. And I was literally talking about when I go in a lot of my focus, when I first start training for indoor is just trying to get to feel my shot and feel my timing and just get into a rhythm. So Chris Thomas asks, how important is shot timing? Well, it's pretty important. It, it, here's the thing. Every archer will experience this. You're going to have days where timing comes naturally. It's just second nature and you cannot miss. And then you're going to have days where something doesn't feel right. Something feels a little different or the timing's a little different or you have to let down you know, my worst thing is when I go to Vegas and I'll shoot one day and shoot a, I don't know, 24, 25, 26X, 300, and it was just easy. It's like, wow, that was easy. And then you come out the next day and you shoot, and I'm letting down twice in a three-arrow end, worrying about the time. So, yeah, timing's important, but what's even more important is when your timing is off, you need to be... Uh, mentally, I don't know how, how, you, how you'd say it, in the position where you can still make it happen even though the timing is not on. Now, practice timing is, is great. You're going to get into a rhythm. You know, you're going to set up. You're going to draw. You're going to aim. You're going to execute and go pull them, and you're going to do it again. It's great for any archer when the timing is on. But what really separates, you know, the the very best guys from the really good guys is that even when the timing's off, they can still fight through, execute, and get the scores that they need to even when you know things aren't easy for them to do. Yep, and one thing that I really, one thing that I um, kind of reinforced last night was there was two times where I let down, and I said, you know, what's important is understanding when you really feel like you're forcing a shot and when you there's a difference between forcing a shot and there's a difference between a shot maybe just not feeling so good but you feel like you can still make it happen there was a point twice where i felt like if i continue to go any further i literally will not be able to tell you what this arrow is going to do so that's like one of the biggest well, there's a couple things. I think that's a big important point for people to realize if you feel like you're 100% forcing it versus it not feeling good. I think if you can I think if you're willing to let down, there's times where that's probably the best shot you make. And the other thing is if your timing isn't good and you make a bad shot and you and you get lucky enough to hang it, which almost every person in the final, do you agree with this? Every person in the final had one shitty shot. The difference is theirs hung the line, and the other 1,600 people, it didn't. But they, yeah, were, well, but they were able to move on. They were literally able to say, okay, thankfully that's in. 
I need to like get myself back together, get myself back on track. Right, right. And you know, the difference between and th- and that's why you go and practice so that your bad shot's a 10 and you know, and not a 9 or an 8 or whatever. Right, right. So, you know, one of the one other thing on this timing deal and I find that I've thought about this a lot with my Vegas practice is I'll practice here and I'll shoot the three arrows and I'll let down and I don't think about, you know, whether I got enough time or what when I, I may let down twice and shoot three perfect center X's and walk down there and go, yeah, see, I I knew I should have let down and it paid off. Well, now I get into that same exact scenario in Vegas with the time on and different things start running through your head because you have to pay attention at what time it is. Now, in practice, I didn't really pay that much attention, and I don't know a lot of guys that practice on the clock. That's a really important thing to do. I have a clock, and I will practice on the clock once in a while, and it's amazing that when you do have to let down and you're trying to make that shot and you've got you know, 10, 9, 8 that you can see out of the corner of your eye, your focus isn't always on the target and executing that shot. You're kind of doing two different things. So it's important to to practice how you're going to play. Yeah, well, that's something I say all the time is practicing how you play. There's actually an app which I downloaded. Um, I'm trying to see if I can find it quick on my phone here because I have so many dang apps. But it's, it's literally called Shot, uh, shot Timer. And... It allows you to actually set um, kind of a time so that you can that you can monitor that, and it's a very good practice tool um, because it it allows you to really recognize where you are on the shot clock. Because, well, did you ever hear about the time where I shot the uh, the eight ninety in Vegas with Ulmer? Did I ever tell you? Did I ever tell you that? No. Uh-uh. <laughs> oh crap! So I'm shooting. I'm shooting, and of course uh, I was clean. I get paired with Randy, and you know how Randy is. I don't think he ever really—at least for me—I don't feel like he's ever intentionally like done anything. But I'm sitting there. I'm clean. I'm like feeling so good about my shot. I draw back. I pulled I I kind of come in on the on the target. It's my last arrow and I'm sitting there aiming, aiming, aiming and it doesn't really feel good so I let up. I look at the clock and there's 27 seconds on the clock. So I kind of took a yeah. deep breath, set my bow down, kind of composed myself. I look at the clock and Randy Randy was being a gentleman by standing on the line and he was standing there waiting for me to shoot. And he's kind of right. look. He's kind of looking at me, and I go, "Let me know." And he goes, uh, "All right." So I raise my bow, I pull back, and I'm sitting there just. I'm holding so good in the middle, and I was shooting a Revenger, and I'm just sitting there just relaxing my finger. And back then, remember, I shot the pouch that had like I had several, so. I I had just grabbed one that had a lot of travel. So I'm just like sitting like right on the middle of the freaking tent and I'm just relaxing my finger. And I knew when I drew back, I had like 
16, you know, 12 or 16 seconds, something. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, well, cause you know, courtesy at Vegas is once, right. once you get down to what? Five. Well, three, somewhere, but somewhere below 10, someone will stay eight, seven. Yeah. Six. You know, <laughs> yeah. Just give you like an idea, you know? <laughs> right. Well, I'm at full draw and all of a sudden, and I freaking, I freaking roll my release forward, and I like look at Randy, and there's like 200 people down this line looking at me like, what a freaking dickhead. And I look at Randy, and I'm like, and when I looked at Randy, he had his binos up, and he's looking down range. He had those big old Zeiss. Oh, oh so I already know what his is. Oh, I was gonna let you know what you shot. Yeah, whether it was I, I ten or at, nine. Yeah, I look at him. I go, I go, I go, Randy. I go, dude. And he goes, I thought you want to know where you shot. I go, I just shot <laughs> eighty nine freaking tens, dude. I knew what I was gonna shoot. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. You know, I was shooting. I was shooting. Well, near Randy. And uh, it was a long time ago. And he always, I think it was, I don't know if it was in the bow hunter class or in the regular, the pro class or what, but he was shooting those, you know, a stand style release. This was a million years ago. And I remember watching him shoot down there and, and uh, he was shooting pretty well. And there was a lot of people, you know, he was kind of the guy and everybody was watching him and, and uh, he got up there, and he it was his first arrow of the of the end. And I think I don't know if it was I think it was the tenth end. It may have been the ninth end, but it was right at the end. And he was clean. And I got up there and you know shot my three arrows and and uh, no, I I got up. I had two arrows off, and he was struggling to get his first arrow off. That's what it was. And he had let down a couple of times, and he went to draw the bow back, got the bow back about six inches, and the release came off the string, and the arrow, I mean, did a rainbow, almost hit the ceiling and came down and landed in the target. And he threw a hissy fit, like, you know, threw his release into his pouch, and I, you could just tell he was mad, you know. He just ruined well, the whole deal. Yeah, Randy, and, Randy was that. We. Randy is obviously an icon, but he was yeah. he was an extremely competitive competitor. So, so listen to this though. He's sitting there. So I already I know. I already know. I finished. That sucker shoot, was dead in the middle. Shoot my third arrow. It was dead in the middle. I and I it. purposely waited until you know there was only maybe a minute, fifty-five seconds, something left on there, and I go, uh, "You gonna finish those other two arrows there?" He goes, why? I just shot a zero. I go, well, I don't know. It kind of looks like it's in the 10. Well, he was shooting target one, two, and three is the order he would shoot. Well, it was stuck dead center in target number two. (laughs) (laughs) He hopped up there and, you know, shot two shots as quick as he could and it was still clean. And I have never seen anybody as lucky as that guy on stuff like that. And that's not the only time I've ever seen him do something like that. I was at an ASA in Tennessee, and I saw him skip an arrow off of a tree and into the 12 ring. Dude. On the draw. Did I ever tell you about 
when I shot with him. Well, first off, I want have have you ever watched the um, the Netflix special on Bo Jackson? Uh, no, you, I've never you seen should that. watch it. You should watch it. It's really cool because it it pretty much tells the story of like just how awesome Bo Jackson was and like this aura that was around him and all these like amazing stories that of things that he would do that were like superhuman that didn't even they were just as much luck as they were skill and like yeah. major athletes would witness them to where it was just like that was really why he became so big because in the sports world there was all these rumors circulating around like, did you know Bo Jackson did this? So that's like what you and I dealt with with Ulmer because you had that shit happening. And then at the same time, so me and Randy were peer group together in the IBO World Championship. We were at, we were at, I think we were at Peak and Peak. We're on a ski hill. And you know as well as I do, like Randy was a guy to beat then. I mean – you, Randy Hopkins, and throw Johnny Heath in there. But for me, coming in as a rookie, if you were with those four guys on a target, you were in contention to win a tournament. So right. I'm sitting there with Randy, and you know the thing with Randy is a lot of times he sh- he like he has this like he almost has this presence to where he tries. Like, he knows that that presence intimidates people, so he played off it. Like, I still think to this day, Randy was probably the best mental manipulator of any 3D archer. Like, he threw some voodoo on people and literally made them crumble so he would win. And this was a target where we walk up, and it was a freaking Jake, a Jake turkey and you remember back in the late 90s, like, you didn't really know if the rangefinder's range, fi- like, the range keeper, if his rangefinder was, like, a freaking ranging rangefinder or oh, a bush yeah. or a well, bush 50, now. 50 yards didn't mean anything. It IBO literally, part. yeah, yeah. And when they said 50-yard max, they might as well just say, uh... If you believe us, you're an idiot. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what the disclaimer should have said. <laughs> yeah. So we're standing there. We got this turkey, like, probably at about 20 degrees. You probably remember it. We were on the ski hill. We were, like, straight above the lodge. We were shooting uphill, and there was this freaking Jake. We were in the wide open of the ski hill, like, in the middle of the run, shooting up into that thin strip of timber, and there was a freaking Jake turkey up there. And it was, like... It was 51 yards. I, yeah. I looked at it and looked at it, and I'm thinking, God, it looks like it's max. And then I thought, man, I mean, you remember on that Jake, if you, at that distance, if you were a yard hot, you were just hanging foam, and that thing's back. Okay. So I freaking pull back, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just like dreading that release going off. And it went off. And when you hear foam, it's just like the best feeling of your life. And I look up there, and I got a freaking eight, and I'm just like, oh, baby. Okay, that's Own like, it. Yeah, t- right? Because yeah. then we're shooting 10.85. This is like back when IBOs were long, and it was 10.85. There was no 11. So yeah. Randy comes up. You know, there's like – and remember the – what was the rangekeeper's name that would always run around with the with the stopwatch? You know, as soon as you touch the stake, it's like four minutes, and they're just sitting there staring at you. So 
that guy was there, which kind of was playing it. Was one it. Of the, it was one of the twins, and they were from that club in Erie. Mm-hmm. Because Climber Peak was close enough that that club is the one that hosted the tournament there. Exactly. Right. So yeah. the fact that he was just on that target, I was like, okay, this is this is pretty good. This is like, you know, think. Because Randy was notoriously a guy that took a long time on targets. Like right. he could take, he could let down a lot. So he freaking draws back, and he's shooting that Revenger reverse, and he lets down. He draws back, and he's looking, he lets down, he, like, makes a few clicks on his sight. So I can tell, like, he's kind of second-guessing himself. And he's, you know, he's thinking about, he's he's literally worrying about that shot just as much as every one of us was. And... He freaking draws back again, and I know that in the back of his mind he's thinking that timer is getting ready to, like, call something. So he's at full draw, and he's aiming a long time, and he's like, you know, his mouth is open. You know how he used to shoot his mouth open. He's got that reverse <laughs> claw going. And and all of a sudden, like, because I'm, I'm, like, looking at him. I might have been holding the umbrella for him. And all of a sudden I could see him, like, I knew that the release wasn't going to go off. So he like literally like kind of closes his eyes and like shakes his head like like he was just getting ready to sigh like 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 yeah. the release wasn't going off and as he's like coming down the release goes off and he's like oh shit you know and I'm just yeah. and I and for that half of you know instantaneous as a second I'm like I freaking got him like I knew <laughs> if That's nothing else, yeah. <laughs> And also I hear, and I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, I heard it stick in the foam. Freaking turn around. Randy rips those big Zeiss up. And I am I look up there and focus. And it's literally, like, in the, tw- in the center of the freaking 10 ring, like what would be a 12, the arrow's, like, hanging down to the turkey's feet. It's, like, stuck in there. And I just look at him. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> and he just looks at me. He's just like... He's like, it's Zen. Just deal with it. And he like walks off, and I'm like, you are the luckiest sucker I have ever shot with. I swear. But yeah, that's the kind of stuff that he would do. I was trying to see if I could find that app. I don't have my um. I've got my iPad at my range, and that's what I use. It works really good. Well, let me move into another question quick. Um. So, okay, Brad Iverson. Um. Super hilarious guy on Instagram, by the way. If you don't follow him, you should. He's got some of the coolest videos. But um says, how do you diagnose consistent misses? Say if I always miss high left on a Vegas face. Well, I'll let you answer that. But con- consistent misses can, can really, I mean, there's 360 degrees on a circle. So all those misses will have a different meaning, Brad. But I know what high left means to me. What does it mean to you, Dave? And I'll tell you if, if we're, well, I mean, I know. Uh, be well, same. it depends. Is this guy right-handed? High left is drawing's probably a little long yep. and he's not, not hard on the wall. Yeah. Well, I would say, so he is right-handed, but anytime a high left hit, um, normally that's going to be something that you could definitely work on a little bit with creep tuning and why a lot of guys focus on creep tuning because, if you're not dynamic on the wall and you start to aim more than pull, as soon as you come off that back wall, a lot of systems will shoot high left if you creep. 
And that's actually my number one place of missing is right at 11 o'clock off the dot. And my Matthews were bad for that. Um, I don't know. With like my apexes and my conquests both, if I would be soft on the wall and I would creep a little bit or kind of just start to come. You know how that cam track had that sway in it, Dave? Remember how the cam yeah. track on the Matthews, it like stepped down, then kind of came in. If I, it wouldn't really let you feel if you were off the wall. You know what I mean? Because you would kind of be sliding up and the cable would almost, it would stay touching that. There would still be friction in the system. Um, so you wouldn't really feel your creep near as bad as like if you creep on a spiral cam or something, you can you know, you're going to know it because your bow is going to want to go forward. But for for me, high left is always relative to creeping. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it can be it can be a twofold thing there. It, it can be creeping and it could be the creeping could be a result of the draw length being a little too long for yep. as well. Oh, yeah. So, the, the way to diagnose that is, you know, nowadays on most bows, it's real easy to change a half inch or a quarter inch. So, um It'd just be something that you shorten down, give it a try, see if that doesn't go away, see if your misses are half that distance, or if you're still missing the same, the same amount, then you know maybe you got to look somewhere else. Maybe it's it's it's. Well, you might need to. Yeah, you might that, you might need to put your top cam like put one extra turn um, in your bottom cam just so that your top touches a little sooner. A lot of times, if your top cam is touching, especially if you're an aimer and you're holding it full draw for a long time, um, you really want, there's more rebound. So just, well, this, I guess we got to back up, but like in your power cable, your power cable on some, a lot of the newer type systems, cam and a half or hybrid type systems, your power cable or your bus cable holds a lot more um, pressure than your control cable. So a lot right. of times what happens is that that control cable starts to go forward before the bottom and you end up shooting a little bit out the top. Otherwise, um, Brad, one of the things I talked about in my live feed, which is a very common mistake I make, is the longer I hold, the more I start to fall out of my peep. And if you don't really focus on having your true eclipse, if your peep starts to slide up on your scope, it'll also make a difference as well. So I think those are two things that you can really focus on and, and help you with that. And just to touch on that, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, but I, I would 100% agree with you that that is the case on a uh, cam-and-a-half style system. Um, so touching on the Bowtech thing, with the bow that I'm shooting right now, that, that, that – uh, pressure that's all on the bus cable on a cam and a half style bow is split evenly on this overdrive binary system so i don't find that i get a lot of highs with this system like i did with my cam and a half or a single cam i mean i definitely struggled with it with single cam yeah a single cam is is it does the same thing but on a single cam you can't change that you can't make your your top stop hit first Right. On a, yeah. On a cam and a half, you're able to do that. A single cam, it is what it is. You know, there's just not a lot of adjustment there. Yeah. If you creep, you're high. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. question. So um, now, Kyle, let's see, it's Kyle Demerit is asking, does your draw length differ from your hunting bow to your indoor bow to your 3D bow? That's a pretty easy one. I'll let you grab that one. 
Uh, no. <laughs> okay, I need to grab that one then. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, D- Dave's doesn't because he is specifically a 3D shooter. Um, so Dave's always, a lot of the 3D shooters do shoot 70 pounds, and a lot of 3D shooters are literally changing over their front sight apparition, um, your front sight aperture, and their arrows. They're changing it over to suit 3D archery versus when I shot FIDA style archery, or if Dave shot more than just the Arizona Cup, he wouldn't be allowed to shoot over 60 pounds. So, yes, there it does vary. Um, my, you know, my my overall feel of my bow, like the mass weight of my bow doesn't vary, but my pulling weight and my arrow setup has to vary just because I'm not allowed to shoot 70 pounds if I'm shooting, you know, a FIDA or a world archery style event. Right. Well, I thought the question was, does the draw length vary? No, draw weight. Draw weight. Oh, draw weight. Yes, the draw weight does. I, I misunderstood. I thought it was the draw length. Okay. What are you shooting for your hunting bow? Uh, you know, when I went on this last elk hunt, I just had a, uh, I shot a Fanatic. I shot the same, the same Bowtech bow that I am going to compete with. But uh, I got to tell you, here at the archery shop, I've been messing around with a new hunting bow that they have. It's called a Rain, and uh, they have it in a 6-inch brace height and a 7-inch brace height. And that Rain 7 is something else. It's, that will be my hunting bow for 2017. What freaking bow was Tristan using on this elk or on this mule deer he shot? <laughs> Dude, did he shoot that little thing? He shot that with that gear head. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so he had it out at the house. Uh, it was a deal where you know someone gave it to him to try out. I think it's like an eighteen hundred dollar bow. I looked at it and I thought, well, that's like a toy. Well, he took it out and shot it. I shot it a little bit, and I'm like, wow, this thing really shoots pretty good. Well, he decided he was going to take a deer hunting, and uh, I think, what did he end up doing? He ended up shooting that deer at about 45 yards, a complete pass-through, and uh, I think the deer went about 20 feet. And uh, I asked him, I go, when did you sight the thing in? He says, well, I shot it yesterday after school and uh, had it sighted in out to 80 yards. He said he was shooting, you know, pop can size groups at 80 yards with broadheads with the bow and i was thought wow that's that's pretty amazing so i went out with him the other day and he shot it again it's legitimate man the thing actually shoots really well so for a hunting scenario i think the thing weighs less than three pounds and it's 24 inches long it's it's a crazy hunting bow (laughs) (laughs) well yeah, that's unbelievable. I was looking at that picture you sent me, the giant freaking muley that he shot. But um, so, was he shooting seventy pounds, or what was he shooting? No, for? it was a it was a sixty pound bow. The one that he he has a set of seventy pound limbs coming for the bow. But the guy that let him let him take it and test it out, it was in a sixty pound configuration, twenty nine inch draw length, and uh, so that's what he went with. You know, it's it's. Uh, it did the job. It uh, it's a pretty neat neat thing. I would have never ever given it a second look, but now that he is uh, he's had it and shot it a little bit and been successful with it, I'm like, wow, that's that's pretty interesting. Especially if you were like backpacking somewhere, you know, it's it's half the weight of a a regular bow, and you and I both know that 
pack on seven, eight miles in the morning and seven, eight miles in the evening, those bows get heavy. Oh, they yeah. They don't get lighter. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people ask me whether, like, the Carbon Defiant is worth getting compared to, like, a Pro Defiant. And there's really two situations. If you're someone that's going to be toting it a lot, really every ounce matters. Like, if you're just the type of Western hunter where you're constantly carrying, you're packing, you got a lot of other stuff to worry about, it does yep. matter. Or if you're in freezing cold, like here, oh, yeah. you know, during the month of January, there was a few times where I was like, man, I don't know if I like holding this aluminum riser too long. <laughs> if you hold it too long, it might stick. Yeah, well, it does, yeah. It does. I feel like uh, the kid from Christmas Story putting my freaking tongue on the ice on the flagpole. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's move in. So you do shoot different weight, just like me, just depending on yeah. what, what yeah, you're shooting. Yeah, depends on what the tournament rules are. But here's let's touch on that a little bit. I got a second part uh, answer wise for that question. Perfect example. Uh, when I went down and I was shooting uh, this league for Vegas, I went down there and did that with a seventy pound bow. And uh, I thought, you know, I need to get ready and go to Vegas. I should, I should really be shooting a 60-pound bow. So I took the bow. Um, Bowtech has a triangular stop so that you can manipulate your holding weight. So my 60-pound bow is holding 13.5 pounds. My 70-pound bow is holding 13.5 pounds. So yeah. at full draw, both of the bows feel exactly the same. Now, in years past, I have not been able to do that with bows. And a big key to my success is holding weight. I hold... Yeah, I need to 13, talk about that. That 13, 14-pound range, my body holds that the stillest. If I'm less than that, it's, I can't hold still. If I'm more than that, I can't hold still. And I find that to be much more important than stacking a bunch of stabilizer weights off of one side or the other. It's you and I, yeah, you and I talked about that this summer. You and I were just talking, and I thought, remember, I was like, damn it, I wish we would have podcasted this because you and I were, were totally on the same page about so many people now because they're trying to make their bow hold steady. They're so yeah. focused on stabilizer weights and stabilizers versus actual holding weight and cam feel because you and I are like identical to where if a bow feels good to us nine times out of 10, if we were to pull it back and check what our holding weight is, they're going to be the similar. So that's why a lot of times the heavier hunting bows feel just as good for me. And one of the questions I answered during the live feed was, do you think you could shoot just as good in a tournament with your hunting bow? And I say, I think some of my hunting bows have arguably shot better than my target bows. And I think that because with some of that extra overall weight, but with the cams having a higher let off, my holding weight is the same as what really works for me. And Dave and I have always been the same. We found a weight that works really well for us. So it really doesn't matter if it's a Hoyt or a PSE or a Matthews or anything, if you give us a bow and that holding weight is within the range of what we really like for our stature and our overall body mass size, then the bow works really well and it steadies itself without having to steady it by adding a ton of mass weight to it. Yeah. 
Well, you got to remember, John, you and I did those kind of things out of necessity. Nowadays, that's kind of lost because the rules in some of these tournaments have been changed. So if you think back to the old IBO days when a 12-inch maximum stabilizer is all you could have and you couldn't have any sidebars, that's right. how are you going to make your bow hold still? You're not going to put a bunch of weight off of this side or that side. You're going to figure out what the holding weight is that best suits you, and you're going to take that bow and do the best you can with it. Or, and, yeah, or, or, or you and I back then, we would build strings and cables to where our diameters would give us our holding weight that we wanted, right. even if the cam system wouldn't. Or how many cams have you taken, drilled and tapped a, a flat-headed bolt in there so that you could open it and close it, close it to uh, manipulate the holding weight of your bow? Uh, yeah, like every single bow in the 90s and the first five yeah, years of the 2000s. Yeah. They all come that way now. I mean, <laughs> just screw in a stop, and if it's not enough, you can throw some shrink tube on there, heat it down, make the stop bigger, throw another layer on there, heat it down, make the stop bigger, and manipulate those weights. But, yeah, there used to be a lot of creative things that people had to do to make things shoot better. And, you know, Part of the thing nowadays is the equipment is just so much better than what we were using back then. It just makes it easy like, to pick and choose what you want to do. I don't know how many times I, get a, I would get a bow and then figure out, okay, how am I going to make this bow shoot? Well, I, did, I had a bucket of 20 different type of arrows to shoot out of the bow till I found one that would shoot good out of there. Well, nowadays it's like, okay, I'm going to pick that arrow and I'm going to make this bow shoot that arrow. So things have changed a lot. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, the mentality, the stabilizer mentality thing, um, uh, one of the stabilizer manufacturer's biggest tricks was to get somebody to go and, and convince you that you need to stack 40-some-odd weights off of your bow at eight bucks of crack, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, and i got to tell you, I saw everybody doing it, and I thought, man, you know, I haven't shot in a while. I wonder if there's something to this. And I did the same stinking thing. I would go out and get a stabilizer, and I stacked, you know, 16 ounces off of this side and 4 ounces or 5 ounces off of this and 8 ounces out of the front. And I pick it up, and I shoot it, and I make three or four really good shots with it. And then I can't. It just kind of goes to hell in a handbasket. Well, and back when we talked earlier in 2016 – uh, I think what the reason that whole conversation came up was I took the bow out there, put the old stabilizer system on it that I had like, I don't know, five or six ounces off of the front and six or seven ounces off of the back, took it out there and shot it and held better than I held any of this stuff that had, you know, 20, 30, 40 ounces of weight on it. I know. I'm with you. I'm 100% with you on that. I keep saying it. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, I saw, I actually saw a picture of two really well-known shooters today on Instagram. They made a post and there was two really well-known shooters and I'm like looking at them in this picture and I literally, they're, it's almost like their bows were made by the same person and just handed to them because so many people are just following suit of what, if this guy's doing good. Everyone just like builds that set. Back when yeah. you and I shot, it wasn't like that. You and I had a set that was similar, but we were not we were not the same as Jeff. We were not the same as Randy. We were not the same as Chapel. We weren't the same as Heath. 
Like right. everybody figured out for their size. And I know Randy's really big on this. You know, he figures out what for his size, what is kind of the mathematical equation to what holding weight and overall physical weight of the bow works well for him. And most of these setups now, just physically, unless these guys were like built like most of the Mr. Olympias right now, there's no physical way that they can hold true posture and be able to manipulate that kind of weight. It's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. What? Well, okay. So the next question here, and this is kind of rel- this is relative too. We've kind of already answered it, but Cody Draper, he's from up in Canada, good friend of mine, um, asked, "Do you shoot the same mass weight bow for both 3D and FIDA?" So I personally would because both of those are very similar. And actually, when I shot 3D, um, I never really. I never really tried to to go crazy on speed, and I never really tried to go super crazy on overall shaft diameter. When I found an arrow that grouped the best, I literally knew that I could score better with an arrow that was spined correctly for my bow. For me, I shot right around 62 or 63 pounds a lot during 3D season, but I also did that because... I could get a 2312 to group much better than if I personally shot a 2512 at a heavier poundage. However, you right. were different. Yeah, yeah. I uh, shoot if I remember back. I shot 2512s at almost everything. Yeah, you shot 20. And you shot the lights out of those suckers. My weight, you know, I liked the 67 pound bow, not because the bow was 67 pounds, because that's the weight that the bow ended up at where my holding weight was in that 13 to 14 pound range. And, you know, to answer his question a little more, yes, definitely nowadays I would shoot exactly the same mass weight because hopefully you have figured out the mass weight of the bow that you hold the best for your body type. And by shooting a 3D bow that might be 70 pounds and and, and uh, a feed bow that might only be 60 pounds, exactly what we just said. My two bows, one's at 70, one's at 60, are holding within two-tenths of a pound of each other holding weight. Why would I shoot a different mass weight setup? I wouldn't because my body, for that short amount of time that you draw the bow back and it's 60 or 70, that doesn't have anything to do with the shot. When you're setting up your shot, coming into your target, aiming and executing your shot, 13 pounds, whether it's on my 60-pound bow, or 13 pounds, whether it's on my 70-pound bow, my body just knows that it's 13 pounds. So why would I change the stabilizer system? I wouldn't. I would find out what shoots the best, and the only way to do that is to put in time and see what your body deals with the best. It would be like, um, well, for instance, Rio real wild that guy shoots a lot of weight on his bow it works for him he wins people see that he wins they run right out and buy that stabilizer system with 10 pounds of weight on there and put it on their bow and they don't shoot like real that would be like me going and and going oh see john dudley man he wears a size 12 green nike well, I wear a size 14, but I'm going to go buy size 12 green Nikes because he won with those. I think they're going to work for me. 
you know, it just, you got to get past that mentality and you have to figure out what works for you before you, you know, dump a bunch of money and time and doing something that doesn't work or isn't going to work. Yeah, and the other thing you got to pay attention to is what style of actually, what style of shooting technique are you striving for? Because Rio's form and the way he sets up and the way he manipulates a shot, that's really not something that most of us could even coach to be repetitive. That's something no, that that not. that's something that him, his dad, and his brother are capable of doing. Outside of that. There's hardly anyone that would actually take that form of a compressed front end, leaning back, being able to just hold that weight perfectly still at one particular distance, and then be able to slowly squeeze a release until it fires. There's just not many people that could ever do that. So, no. so, so With archery, the key is, especially when you're teaching somebody, is to teach them what is the easiest thing to duplicate every time. Okay, so what works for you and what works for me and what works for Rio is different types of things. So how do I say this without being all muddled here? Um, you can muddle. Correct form, correct form, all that stuff, it's, it's, kind of a baseline so that you can be repetitive and get the same result shot after shot after shot but on the flip side of that like you stand there and you look at Rio like if if you didn't know Rio from Adam and you walked into a place and saw him shoot that would not be the guy that I'm worried about beating (laughs) right yeah exactly but for Rio to do exactly the same thing over and over and over again just proves that no matter what you do, if you do it exactly the same, you're going to get a good result. Hopkins, another perfect example. Yep. That's not the type of form that I shoot. I couldn't do what he does over and over and over again. But it proves that if you do the same thing over and over again, you're going to get a good result. So what we want to do and what I tried to do in my archery career was figure out the easiest way to do it the same over and over again, not the hardest way to do it the same. Yep. Yeah. For the majority of the people. And that's what I you know, what I teach is what I feel like if I take a hundred people, I feel like I can get ninety people to be super comfortable really quick doing it my way. Versus there may be 10 people to where even if my way is easiest, they may be people that are like Rio or Jeff to where they just, they're just like, this doesn't feel good. This just doesn't feel comfortable. But the, you know, I'm trying to focus on the 90 and not on, you know, what I call and what I talk about a lot in my seminars is, you know, there's always the exceptions. So, you know, Rio, his three brothers, uh, you look at like, you look at Jeff, you look at Maya Marson, um, who shoots, you know, with her left eye with a trigger. You look at Tim Gillingham, you look at Richard Leftwich, you know, you look, th- there's just Colin Booth. There's like so many different figures over our careers that they were unbelievable world-class archers, but 
you're not going to teach 90 out of 100 people to be able to do it that way. Okay, well, here's an extreme case, the armless archer. Yep, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Matt Stutzman, I'm telling you. That proves right there, if you, t- if you stood on your head and shot your bow and shot it exactly the same every time, you could still win. Yep. He, he does it exactly. He has figured something out that works for him and does it the same every time. Yeah, he figured it out in my basement, dude. Yeah, he's an awesome guy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's move into another question. We got Todd Gartshore um, says, can you talk about proper be- breathing techniques at full draw? So what? I'll let you take this one. What? what, it, what? <laughs> you know what? I absolutely hate when that is ever brought up while I'm shooting. And here's the reason why. Because <laughs> you think about it. I don't it. think about it. <laughs> and now, now i got to back up a little bit because, you know, you make all these jokes about, oh, you, you don't even practice and you don't do this and you don't do that, and then you show up and you, you shoot lights out. Well, there was a time in a galaxy far away a long time ago where I put in a lot of time. Yeah, it was probably when you and your eight brothers were shooting for food or something. (laughs) So so I used to think about all that stuff. Uh, And I'd think about, okay, do this, do this, do this, do this. Well, yeah, when I draw a bow, I usually inhale, you know, take take a deep breath, and I'll start letting that breath out as I settle into the target. And as I get closer to the middle, I'll let a little less out and less out. And then if I have to breathe, it, I'll do that. It'll just in and out with the least amount of movement that I can. Now, if I pull my bow back and I think about breathing, oh boy, I, I'm done. I'm not thinking about aiming. I'm not thinking about executing. I'm thinking about breathing. So I practice you know, doing the same breathing technique over and over enough to where I don't even think about it now. It just happens second nature. Now, if I hold too long and the sight picture goes away or I start getting more movement, you got to let down and, and start over again. And uh, breathing is a very important thing. In the beginning, it's something you're probably going to think about a lot, but uh, honestly, the guys on on uh, the professional level that that are winning this stuff, I can guarantee you, they don't draw that bow back and think about how they're breathing. But we're not we're not literally taking deep breaths during the shot. You know, it's, right? You know, it's there's kind of opposing things there. You can't for every action, there's always going to be an equal and opposite reaction. So if you're sitting there moving by breathe deep breathing up and down, then th- you're definitely going to see a result in your front you know, in your front sight picture with that. Um, well, I've got a few more here. So Matthew's, Matthew Walters is saying, do you prefer the smallest scope for competition? Why or why not? Well, if we were going to stand out at 100 yards and shoot the same spot over and over, you bet I like that nice small scope because I'm going to get a nice small peep to fit it, to bracket it, to halo it or eclipse it or however you want to call it. And my margin of error is going to be smaller with a small peep and the small scope aperture. But that is not conducive to a lot of shooting. So 
the mo- for most of the shooting I do, <clears throat> which is like 3D animals, you know as well as I do, if you're the first man up and you got a teeny tiny scope running four or six power in it, <laughs> you're hosed. Yeah. You're hosed. You've got nothing to aim at but foam. You can't tell where you're at on the animal. As soon as you look through that peep, it's a big blob of whatever color the animal is. Now, if you've got arrows to aim at in there and you can play off of those arrows, it's okay. But the problem is in a 3D situation, you're rotating in 20 targets. You're probably going to shoot first four or five times. Yep. So I usually go to a – on that type of deal, I will typically somewhere around a 40-millimeter front end, 38 to 42-millimeter scope with four to five power, and that usually lets me see – like the back or the leg or the bottom. It lets me see something on the animal so a I silhouette. know where I'm at. Yeah, part of the yeah. silhouette for reference. Exactly. So, um, you know, feet at 90 meters, yeah, let's make that sucker tiny and just hold it in the same circle all day long and pound it. But you know, real-world situation where you're out there shooting a 3D tournament from – target to target to target and you don't have a spot to aim at you probably better go with a bigger aperture but that is when when you are shooting power so there's been times where in my career where all of a sudden i just really feel like i really like my sight picture i like my hold i like what i'm seeing looking through either a two power lens or no lens with a very small fiber And in those cases, I could shoot the smaller, you know, it's pros and cons. Like Dave said, there were years where we shot, remember the freaking Super D housing we shot? I mean, that thing was like the the big as the top of a Yeti cup. You could uh, (laughs) see half of the range when you drew back through that one. (laughs) You could see your target and the next target. (laughs) But, But there were times where... You know, I would just show up at the tournament, and all of a sudden, I would just really feel good at home uh, practicing with, well, and there's a few things that would factor in. I didn't always take the exact same setups to different shoots, because the longer you shoot these tournaments, the more you start to realize what the courses offer. And there was times where Dave and I would shoot courses where they were notoriously very dark, where you're shooting from from the light into the dark and in those cases a lot of the smarter shooters would know that if they were going to that event they would drop in power so that they would be able to see the target clear and in a lot of those cases if i shot that smaller lens i would shoot the smaller housing um right just because you know you don't want to have a low power with big lens because you're wasting like like dave said you're wasting a lot of sight picture and you're also forced into shooting a much bigger peep when you don't really have to right right uh let's see here just scrolling through some some of these are pretty long um let's see uh I know you're probably getting. You're having to get back in the shop and do some work. Um, oh, yeah. this is an important. Had to come this is. Then, yeah, this is an important one. So, when shooting 3D targets, how do you judge yardage, or how do you personally find your spot to pick on the? You know, we definitely have to talk about judging, and we definitely have to talk about aiming on 3Ds because you're the master for that. So judging. 
What do you mean judging? <laughs> yeah, we're asking on, the wrong. You get on person. a list. You get on a short list, and they send you the yardages before you even get to the tournament. <laughs> Jeez, we're gonna start some real stuff now. Back. <laughs> do you in the know old... how many times I've been accused of that kind of stuff in my career? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, let me tell you. For me, I spent a lot of time. Uh, and I, I think I've told you this before, but I've spent a lot of time uh, when I was in high school. I had summer jobs, and then out of high school, I, I used to cut timber, cut a lot of timber. Well, the, the first thing you do when you cut a tree is you cut the longest length you can out of it. Well, the longest length that they'll take into the mill was 30 foot. Well, how far is 30 foot? Yeah. 10 yards. Yeah. So all day long, I'm taking that tape, slapping it in the bottom of the log, walking up the log, finding 30 foot, cutting it, and going to the next 30 foot, cutting it, going to the next 30 foot, cutting it. Well, you don't undo your tape to go to the following 30 foot. You just go to 60, and then the tape goes out to 90. And we cut a lot of trees that we could cut 90 foot out of it. So you go and do that for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, it gets to where you don't even have to look at the tape when you're already making a cut. So that really helped me in my judging yardage because I did it in 10-yard increments. Now, a guy can do that with a rope. You can take a rope and tie a knot or tie a ribbon or whatever every 10 yards and take it with you and get an eye, get an eye for what 10 yards looks like in the terrain you're in. Get an eye for what 20 yards looks like. Get an eye for what 30 yards looks like because... You know, living in Arizona, um, and 90-some-odd percent of the tournaments are all back east in the deep green woods, it's not like I had an advantage to judge yardage out here. I had to judge off of what I saw on the ground because if I'm judging off of the terrain out here in the cactus and judging off the terrain, you know, back in Atlanta, it's not the same terrain. I'm, I'm not going to do a good job at it. So. For me, it was very visual on the ground as far as what I thought 10 was, what I thought 20 was, what I thought 30 was. I'd do it from me to the target. Then I'd do it from the target back to me. But I got to tell you, the days that I shot the best, if you had given me the yardages, I wouldn't have shot as good as I did judging the yardages. Yep. And I think that you can probably see that with a couple of archers today if you look at what the scores are in the known distances and what the scores are of these other guys in the unknown distances, you know, people think, oh, well, hey, if they'd have shot in the known, they'd have even shot, they'd have, they'd have shot way better. Well, I can tell you that I've gone out and shot, you know, a 438 or a 440 on an unknown distance, and I can promise you, if you had given me the yardage to all of them, I probably wouldn't have shot quite that high. Yep. I don't know why that is, but when you're on, I can look at a target and just automatically pop into my head, hey, it's this far. And I will double-check myself off of the ground and go, yeah, yeah, that works out. Put the sight to what I think it is and shoot it. So some days it's real easy, it comes to you, and other days... It's not. You gotta. You gotta. You gotta have a backup plan. So when you look at the target and you just know, the backup plan is to know what it looks like on the ground, and that's how. That's how I always did it, and it was just repetition of doing it over and over and over again to, 
to be good at it, and I was naturally pretty good at it. Well, it's funny because that's so similar to what I gave credit to because I don't feel like I could ever judge a target well other than the fact that I really knew what 10 yards was because so much of my practice in football was my coach would always put me on the 10-yard line. And yeah. we just ran all these drills of first and t- just goal line situations, goal line, goal line, goal line. So you're just looking at 10 yards all the time to where right. it's just like when you look, when your brain looks out, it just puts this imaginary graph out there of these lines. So you're able to be like, okay, well, there's 10. Okay, there's 10. There's 20. Well, it's definitely double that. You know, I mean, there's just so much you can put together if you have that really good mark. And actually, most most of the really good judges in 3D, at least when we shot, they all had something to do that was relative to distance. you remember that? Because, like, you know, Johnny Heath was always trimming trees. Catcher was surveying. Remember, he was always uh, surveying ground when Bobby Catcher was shooting really good. A lot of people were just, you know, consistently having to do something in their field to where they were at a repetitive distance. And if you can figure that part out, then a lot of it starts to fall into place. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. That's that's definitely true. Well, so the question is, are you going to shoot unknown or known? You haven't even well, told me that. I guess it's unknown at this point, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> ah. Nice. I'm, cur- I'm curious uh, what you're going to I was wondering if you are going to ask me to, sh- to be your partner now for Reading. Bro, if you want to go, I'm all over it. Oh, man. That's all a- over it. That would be really fun. I might have to think about that. That would be fun. It'd be fun for a couple reasons. One, it would... Well, I shouldn't say it'd be fun for that reason, but I know some people will be mad because I'm not picking a Hoyt partner. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of mine and your style <laughs> hey come on now we got to think back to when i first started shooting at Hoyt. you know i oh that's right i do owe you one i was the only guy you know i was the only guy there and uh started kind of a dynasty there so hoyt and i will will always uh have a special place in each other's heart i guess you'd say so I'm still on great terms with those guys, and and that's one thing. Over my archery career, I've I've met a lot of good people and made a lot of good friends and worked for a lot of good companies, and I've never burned a bridge anywhere. So it's always something that uh, you know. It's a small industry. You don't want to get into to abusing privileges that you're given. So uh, you know, we can talk about Hoyt all we want. It's it's. You know, there's a bunch of good people. They have good equipment, and you know, quite honestly, in in my career, uh, it was the first company I spent more time shooting my bow than working on my bow. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were actually we're both in that same boat. That's the one thing I'll say about Hoyt. When people ask me which one I liked better. It's hard to say because for the, you know, for the biggest majority of my professional career, you know, I, I accomplished almost everything that I accomplished on the, on the competition floor with my Matthews simply because, you know, I only really shot 
some professional events for maybe a year or two once I switched to Hoyt. Um, Then I kind of gravitated to a whole new area, I guess, in life. But um, the one thing I'll say is I never traveled with two bows ever again when I switched to Hoyt. I always just traveled with one. And that wasn't one – that wasn't – you know, it's not like I had failures all the time, but I just confidence wise, they're pretty bulletproof. They are bulletproof. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean the, 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 uh, fit and finish on them. I mean, let's just face it. It probably takes twice as long to assemble one of those bows as it does, you know, brand X. Um, and that's another thing that I'm seeing with Bowtech just the way that these bows are assembled um, everything is tight you know when you get a bow I know that you press it you check the wheel spacing you check the play you check all those things before you put time into it and take it out and shoot it and see if it's going to shoot with the with the Bowtech stuff that whole overdrive cam system comes assembled from the factory it is pressed together there are no spacers there's nothing to be loose to give you any left and right or lateral movement in that cam system and then four bolts hold it onto the limbs so it is really nice when i get that bow i know i don't have to go in there to that cam system and manipulate anything in it to get it as tight as it needs to be to shoot the best that it can because it's coming from the factory that way yeah so that's one thing that they're doing that is completely different than than uh what any other manufacturer has at at the moment i think uh we're gonna see that that technology is kind of the wave of the future i mean we saw the one cam come and it, it had a long stay and transitioned to, to, to a cam and a half and we see a lot of binary cam systems um i think this overdrive cam system is is something something we're going to see a lot of in the future and uh well you're definitely going to see a lot of it because they just they just made a, a crazy aggressive push and got a lot of really good shooters. So we're definitely going to see it. I mean, it's no different than, um, obviously you have to have product to sustain, but you know, three years ago, elite made a big push and in any business, when you start out, you know, ultimately you're trying to make a marketing or a business plan to where in three years time you're in the black. So, Right. Um, you make a you make big investments and you go after big names and you try to make a a big roar, um, which you know Botex done that a few different times. Um, you know I guess for they're an important they're an important company for the industry. There's a lot of real loyal faithful Botex shooters. So and you know a really good friend of mine Justin Ertl um, is he loves his Botex. So you know like I said I don't want to. My brand has always been about all all archers, not necessarily bow specific. So, you know, I want to make sure, you know, if people are shooting a different brand, I'm able to bring people on that can that can relate to the brand that they're using. So, I'm glad that you're doing it. I mean, I know that um, Hoyt's going to be mad that I said that probably, but um, you and I have you and I have we've shot a lot of different bows, man. We've been able, we've had the option to shoot a lot of different gear over the years. Um, well, one last question. So, uh, Andrew, I think it's Ehard, I believe is asking once warmed up, how long is your average shooting session? How many arrows do you prefer to shoot for practice? So, 
we're probably going to vary on that, I would imagine. But I'm curious your thoughts on it now that you're really focused on making a comeback. Yeah, one practice shot, three shots. <laughs> uh, we're good. <laughs> it's so true. Dave shoots 21 arrows per day at an ASA event. That's what's sad. Well, yeah. you know, you got to stop by and smash at least one of Braden's arrows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no kidding. That was so fun. That was so fun. I got payback for that. You know, karma, like I said, karma's a bitch. And uh, one time I was sitting there, and this is back when I was like, I was kind of the international sales and marketing manager for Matthews, and I was overseeing all the pro staff. So when I went to some of the big events, there was a lot of shooters that I would be talking with, and cousins would always get fed up with the fact that I wasn't like, that I was like socializing with everyone else and, you know, I wasn't really like focusing on, you know, cause him and I did train together a lot during those years. So right. one day I'm sitting there and I all of a sudden hear a whole bunch of laughing going on and I look down and I could see him and Chris white doing something and they were laughing and there was like a lot of other people doing it too. So, I kind of just went over there to see what was going on and they David came up and took my 12 tournament air. Luckily he knew that I traveled with more than cuz I mean I would travel with like 36 good arrows, but I yeah. but I would always on official practice day I would really go out and check my main 12 and make sure everything was right, the knocks were indexed and make sure I didn't have any goofy arrow flight on any particular arrow. David come up and slid my arrows out of my quiver and they laid them sideways. The whole Uh-oh. the whole dozen laid them sideways on the freaking 60 meter practice face. And people were just <laughs> snow plowing my dozen and at that time I was shooting ACEs and they were just snow plowing those suckers. And I was so pissed. <laughs> but it but I literally thought, you know, once again, this is what Step and I would do to freaking Braden. You know, we'd go out and pick on his arrows because we knew well, he was hey, sensitive about it. At least we we we'd shoot him from the yeah the hard part to hit, and we didn't lay him up there sideways. <laughs> yeah, we'd at least shoot for the knocks and just blow uh, his knocks apart. Exactly. Well, hey, dude, I appreciate all the time, and you know, you're always. Um, welcome to come to Iowa if you ever want to get cold and um yeah I'm I'm pumped to see you shoot again dude I want to see you in uh I want to see you freaking in Superman City with that with the with the Superman shirt there's been many times you've won that shoot and it's not too far away I may come see you I may come see you shoot that thing that would be fun all right well We'll uh, see how it goes. I'll, I'll keep you informed. And uh, Oh, I'm sure you will. <laughs> I'm sure you're going to call me every night, like first night of the ASAs, and like tell me what's going on and like the no, thing. Dude, every arrow. I'll, I'll be out there. <laughs> hey, hey, guess what? Actually, from, he, he just shot an eight and I smoked a 12. No. <laughs> now we do sound like the Wilds. <laughs> now yeah, we, there you go. Now we are like Rio and Logan. Yeah, he's got a twelve, so he's two up on he's two up on him. But if this guy, he's got the forty yarder next, so if he drops that one, then we're gonna be tied, and then it'll go into that last one. Yeah, I've that stuff. 
has never been my forte. I just go out there yeah. and go out there and shoot twenty well, I shoot I shoot thirty arrows. I have ten practice arrows and then I then practice. I shoot Yeah. Yeah, twenty one. It's always been a good number for me. <laughs> All right, dude. Well, hey, I appreciate everything and uh for those of you who don't know Dave, make sure you check out Dave Step or if you're in the Arizona area, make sure you swing by his shop. He's got a cool shop. He's a cool dude. Great instructor. Uh, and you want to give out your details? Give a shout yeah, out, dude. Uh, it's uh, Mile High Archery. We're here in Prescott Valley, Arizona. And uh, you can look us up and give us a call. Yep. That's it. Give him a call. So thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com